Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 123rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Brent Brodesky. Brent is the co-founder and CEO of Savant Capital, an independent REA based in Rockford, Illinois, that oversees more than $6 billion of assets under management for nearly 5,000 clients. What's unique about Brent, though, is not merely the trajectory of Savant's almost entirely organic growth to $6 billion of AUM, but the way the firm navigated the all-too-common challenge of buying out a co-founder which in their case required raising more than $50 million of capital to fund both the buyout and the next stage of Savant's own growth with a vision to 10x the firm in 10 years. In this episode, we talk in depth about what it means to recapitalize an advisory firm by buying out a founder and taking on new outside investors to provide the cash for growth. The way that Brent interviewed financial buyers, private equity firms, and banks that were willing to lend the key factors that he considered with respect to each type of investor in trying to decide who to work with and who to take capital from, and why he ultimately rejected them all and instead worked directly with some high net worth family offices to be his patient capital investors for the future, and how even his deal with a family office nearly blew up on the finish line when he had last minute doubts that one of his investors was really properly aligned with his own vision for the firm. We also talk about Savant's advisory firm business itself. How the firm shifted its organic growth from being primarily founder-led into being more broadly carried by a large number of advisors at the firm. How Savant has also shared opportunities for ownership in recent years across more than 50 employees in the firm. How Savant's advisor compensation is structured with a combination of salary base and bonuses for both firm growth and individual business development. And how Savant has had to evolve its executive and leadership structure to effectively manage what is now 173 employees. And be certain to listen to the end, where Brent shares the eight distinct phases that he's seen his advisory firm go through over the past 25 years, the way his own role in the firm has shifted and changed as the business itself has evolved, the system they put in place to strategically plan for and execute the business's goals based on John Doerr's measure what matters approach, and what exactly Savant's plan is to try to 10x the firm in the next 10 years. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Brent Brodesky. Welcome, Brent Brodesky, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Michael. I'm, I'm excited for today's discussion because you have what I think is one of the largest independent RAs we've had out on the podcast. I know you're Firm is now upwards of $6 billion under management, which is kind of a mind-numbingly large number for me to think about, you know, having started from scratch 25 years ago and gone through just, you know, a whole bunch of different changes that firms go through as you you hit all the different growth stages to go from zero to upwards of $6 billion. And so I, I'm just excited to talk about like what what that growth cycle looks like and, and maybe for some advisors that either you know, are hoping to grow to that size, are thinking about joining a firm at that size, are, are maybe considering whether to sell to a firm that size. Like just what is like, what does it look like? What is life like in a $6 billion RIA as opposed to, well, like the other 99.9% of firms that are nowhere near that size? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I think where we're at today is uh, is very different than where we were five years ago, which is very different again from five years. It seems like over the history of the firm, about every three to five years, it's it's completely changed. Really, you know, where we're at today, we're an enterprise. You know, we you know, have a real executive team. We have a real board. We have a real capital structure. You know, we have over you know, 50 employees that are partners and, you know, 172 employees. So it's, you know, it's in, in some regards, you know, advising clients, you know, like all advisors do, we just have some more zeros on the AUM and, and the number number of clients and the number of advisors. But, you know, the, the things that make you successful, you know, at over six billion are, are way different than when you're a billion or when you're at 500, 500 million. You know, it's just it's, it's a lot more, you know, focusing on, on governance and leadership as opposed to management and doing. There is a lot more focus on technology and, and creating scalable solutions. Interesting. So you mentioned kind of a couple of interesting things there to me about real executive teams, real boards, real capital structures. I want to I want to dive into all of that further, but but maybe just to to get us started, can you give us a little bit of just an overview of metrics of the firm? You know, I, I guess I sort of let the cat out of the bag of being over six billion dollars under management, but like asset based client client base, revenue base, employees, like how do you look at, you know, if you're looking at this as a large scale enterprise, like what are your key business metrics that you look at to size a firm like this? Yeah. You know, we're, we're about 6.3 billion, depending on the day. We I have 172 employees, just shy of 5,000 clients. And that, that includes predominantly wealth clients, but we have a, a growing segment of the business that's retirement plans as well. You know, World Headquarters is in Rockford, Illinois, which is about 60 miles west of Chicago. But we really uh, sort of have uh, several different regions, 14 offices in total, a growing presence in Chicagoland, Central Illinois, you know, growing number of offices in Wisconsin, and also a, a significant office in the Metro DC area. You know, we have a deep focus on on tax, wealth transfer, comprehensive planning. And, you know, really our, our, our typical client, you know, it's, it's our value proposition is, is planning and, and the implementation of ideal futures for our clients, you know, and of course, like, you know, most in our, our business, you know, we're paid through basis points predominantly, although we do have a, an accounting firm we acquired a few years ago. And, and so we, we've got a growing amount of, 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 of you know, non AUM fee revenue as well. But but in aggregate, you know, it's it's we're you know about fifty million of revenue, and as I said, about about five thousand clients. What's what's a little different, I think, about our structure is I, I see a lot of advisory firms that are, are very top heavy. Think of it as an inverted triangle where you've got a lot of professionals at the top of that, and and not a lot of support staff at the bottom of the inverted triangle. Right, like you know. A bunch of super productive advisors that are seeing clients and like, you know, Betty supports these two advisors and Jimmy supports those two advisors. So I got like six or eight advisors and three support staff. And that's what makes, you know, a hyper efficient $200 million firm. Yeah. And a lot of times those same advisors are also sort of player coaches. They're doing compliance one day and they're investment right. committee another day. And they're, you know, figuring out software for financial planning another day. We, we've kind of taken from day one, a very a different structure. It's, it's more of a traditional pyramid or triangle. And so we, we've got, you know, 172 employees, 48 of those are, are client facing. 
Now we have a whole nother slew of CPAs and, you know, state attorneys and, you know, state specialists and, and CFAs and so on that, that support those. But it's really, we've got more than, you know, two, you know, individuals, you know, that are supporting those client facing for every, you know, one advisor. So it, it really, you know, our, our advisors, the luxury of working with us is they, they tend to be able to wear fewer hats. You know, they get clients, they manage relationships that convey wisdom. If you got gray hair, you're mentoring. And if you don't, you're getting mentored. And of course, there's stuff that you need to do as well. But but the the goal of, of having a, you know, a lot of support team and, you know, heavy technology infrastructure is to, to really allow our advisors to do what they love doing, which is advising and, and doing that more efficiently, more effectively with more clients and, you know, the process making more money. So, so I'm kind of thinking about the firm just, you know, as you said, at, at kind of enterprise scale of how a lot of these numbers start breaking down. So six plus billion dollars, about 5,000 clients. So average client, if I'm doing the math right, is a little over $1.2 million. That's sort of your, though, is that a fair characterization of typical client? Yeah, I mean it's a big bell curve. We've got very large clients right. <laughs> and we've got small legacy and next gen, you know, children of clients. But but yeah, it's about one point three billion ish, one point three million ish on average. And do you set and do you set minimums at this point for who cannot come on board? You know, for a lot of firms as they as they grow, they tend to move up market and start setting some minimums in place just because there was a lot of infrastructure to support after the first couple thousand clients. Right. Well, I th- you know, I think what's a little different about us is, you know, we, we're in Rockford, Illinois, and it's just sort of in the sticks of Chicago. You know, if you take the city and the suburbs of Rockford, it's 250,000 people. So when you when you when you're starting out and with 250,000 people, you, you really don't have high minimums. You take whoever will, will give you their money. Right. And you know what's interesting is we we've built almost half of our business in in that community. So we're we're dominant, obviously. But but in the process, you know we've we've been able to create scale that allows us to very profitably serve you know clients that have a half a million or 250 million. In fact, you know we. You know, we'll go all the way down to fifty thousand. You know, at, a, at a, you know higher than a one percent fee schedule. You know, but the, but the beauty of it is, is at that level, it's not that complex. It's not as much work that they you know really need. But but a lot of those become larger clients. So you know, we we've actually through segmentation, through using technology, through using process, have been able to you know make you know, smaller, medium, large, or extra large clients, you know, very profitable. I mean, our sweet spot is, let's say, half a half a million to, to 10 million. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the core, you know, but we're, we certainly have a lot of larger clients and, you know, a decent number of smaller clients that, that are profitable and that we serve well. You, you make a, a good point there that is something that's kind of struck me for a lot of firms as as they grow and, and tend at least to go up market, that uh, there's sort of this irony to me that so many advisory firms start out with you know, sort of the like, if you can fog a mirror, you're a prospect. If you've got <laughs> any assets, you're a client now. And you know, we'll, we'll take $200,000 accounts, $100,000 accounts, $50,000 accounts, you know, firms that started 10 and 20 years ago, the numbers might have even been lower than that. And, and, and they took those clients and they served them. And they were not only profitable enough to survive as firms, but they had money to reinvest, grow their staff, be successful, become the larger firms that they are today. 
And then to me, there's this strange thing that that seems to happen to a lot of firms, like all these clients that they could profitably serve with no systems and scale suddenly aren't appealing anymore. And now that they have all this staff and infrastructure and systems that in theory is supposed to make them more efficient. And and so I I I've wondered for a long time, like why like like why is it that firms lift their minimums at the, as they get larger? Shouldn't they be dropping their minimums as they get larger because it becomes more efficient to serve the next incremental client when you've already got the infrastructure in place. You know, it, it, it sounds like you guys have kind of gone that curve. Maybe it's even a upside down you, like you, you, you start with low minimums, you get bigger and need higher minimums, and then you get even bigger and you get lower minimums again. Is like, is that a fair characterization of what the journey has been for you guys? Yeah, we, we, we've pretty much had the same structure, you know, all along the, the one change we made about eight years ago is we used to have a, you know, it started out at, you know, a thousand and went to twenty five hundred and then, you know, was at five thousand minimum. And we we actually, you know, were concerned that we were doing the same thing. We were getting larger and larger clients and we were concerned, well, maybe these smaller clients, you know, maybe we're not serving them as well. Maybe they don't like this, you know, they're not getting as much attention. And we, you know, we surveyed them. And it was funny because, you know, the small clients were just as thrilled with us, you know, from a net promoter score than the large clients. And so we mm. realized that that it was more in our head that they weren't being served in, in, in a way that, that was positive. One time we actually segmented the business into two port, two different businesses and two different locations, two different teams, you know, one with a, a lower minimum and a, a more streamlined service model and then larger clients. And, and really what that allowed us to do is to, you know, create a discipline where, you know, you had the next generation talent typically working with those less complex, you know, smaller clients and, and, and therefore, you know, your most seasoned and experienced advisors working with larger ones that tended to have more complexity by segmenting and by having different service models, we found that you could actually provide better service and higher margins on those smaller clients and give them a better client experience. And at the same time, free up valuable capacity of your most seasoned to be able to, you know, focus more on those largest clients and, and then, and then mentoring. So, you know, we had, and, you know, ultimately we kind of rolled it all back together, but we've maintained the segmentation and, you know, different fee schedules for different minimums. And I think it's been very valuable. I, I look at it and, you know, we have extremely high margins, you know, relative to the industry with all the benchmarking. And it's, it's really, we have just, you know, created process and systems and, you know, and, and, segmentation and, you know, to be able to, you know, serve, you know, 5,000 clients. The beauty of it is, you know, the next gen, if you, if you've got a million dollar minimum or a $2 million minimum, you know, the problem is they don't know those kind of people either. So, you know, their, their, their cohorts, you know, don't have that kind of money. So it, it, it also makes it challenging from a development of advisors and, you know, giving them an opportunity to sell and grow, develop business, which of course is a, a skill set you, you learn over a lot of years, you know, through practice. And, you know, if you have a high minimum, you don't have as many opportunities to get up to bat. So we're very comfortable in our, you know, 500,000 to to 10 million and, you know, with the right advisors and the right fee schedule going downstream. And, you know, we've, we've got all the, you know, the bells and whistles and state attorneys and, 
you know, CPAs and we've got 30 just dedicated specialists so we can go upstream as well. And so we're, we, we certainly have our, our family office clients and very large clients, you know, but at the end of the day, we, we, we really think that, you know, 500 to 10 million, you know, maybe up to 25 million, maybe down to 250,000, you know, that's where we can add the most value. That's where scalable processes make a lot of sense. That's where, you know, the, the margins are, are, are quite good. So we're, we're very, you know, there's some firms out there that have like crazy high AUM, you know, and not a lot of clients and, you know, they make it higher on the list. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm okay to be a little lower on the list. But, you know, from a revenue perspective and a profitability perspective, I think many of those firms would prefer our business model. So I, I am curious really fast just to take one more moment in this discussion that you you had a separate business line for serving like younger, smaller clients and sound like you know, separate internally, different staff, different structures that you could you know, streamline what you were doing for them, which I've seen a couple of firms launch and try over the years as, as a way to sort of even, even more deeply segment. You know, I, I used to call it the firm within a firm approach. Like we'll have a mini firm within the firm that does this right. different thing. Right. But you, it sounds like you, you talked about in the past set tense, you unbundled it, or I guess like rebundled it back in. So I'm, I'm just yes. wondering like what, what led to the change that brought it back in? If you were happy with how it was working separately, what, what drove the shift? Yeah. So it was important to break them out. And the reason is, is when you have a, you know, seasoned, experienced advisor, you know, oftentimes those small clients, you know, would consume his time or her time yet he or she didn't then have sufficient time to to either go get new clients and or you know to service the, the larger more complex clients and in and advisors by nature are very nice people and they're relationship people yes we don't like to say no to people yeah and so it's it's really hard you know when you've collected these clients you know over time to say hey you're better served you know, by this other advisor, you know, and, or this, this, you know, more junior advisor and feel like the client will be unhappy. Now, the reality is, is by, by separating it into two brands and two different offices, two different teams, two different service models, it made making those decisions easy because they were policy decisions. And, you know, we found out those clients, you know, they actually became more happy because they, they heard from us more often. And so it, it, it accomplished the mission of, of not only providing more proactive service on a segmented client model, but getting the right, you know, advisors working with those smaller clients. And frankly, you know, their hourly rate, if you will, was lower so they could spend more time and then actually be more profitable. So that was successful. Now, after we accomplished that, the other goal was, hey, well, now we can proactively go out and get small clients that are high potential. Now, what we, we learned, though, was is it, we didn't get a lot more of young professionals. What we found is, is we got a lot of you know, older or retired people that didn't used to qualify that now qualified. And you know, as we, we move forward, we, we were collecting a lot of these proactively, but we also realized that that really wasn't the intention. And then and I think the, the other thing we found is, is the, the younger team, the maybe a little less experienced team that were working on small accounts, when they were limited to small accounts and the biggest, you know, as they were successful in growing clients or relationships, they had to graduate to someone else. That didn't feel good. And by the right. way, those same advisors were gaining experience 
but they weren't really didn't have those more complex and bigger clients to 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 apply that experience to. So we ultimately the mission accomplished on one hand, you know, we were able to segment and get up the right clients with the right advisors. The second hand, it, it turned out to not be successful, that it really drove a lot more young, high potential is really, you know, older, retired with small accounts and spend out mode. So maybe we really didn't want to go out of our way to attract that. And then third of all, to really allow those that were worked in the, the small accounts as they gained more experience to move upstream by having them in two different buckets, they didn't have that opportunity. So we eventually brought it back together, you know, but we still got the benefit of the segmentation and the experience that we gained from all that. So it was a great thing, but it kind of, we mission accomplished and move on. And so how do you, how do you segment them now? Is this like a A, B and C clients and certain advisors get certain client types? Do you have like a team where, you know, you on the team get the A clients and you on the team get the C clients. Like how do you, how do you do the segmentation now to try to maintain the the benefits you were getting before? Yeah. I mean, we, what we figured out was, is you didn't have to have two different business models for the more senior advisors. If they just didn't get paid on those clients that were below $500,000 or below $5,000 minimum fee, they were very eager to hand those off after all. Ah, just from a comp perspective, like, you know, Dear senior advisor, your compensation is tied to the clients you're servicing, but only the clients you're servicing that are over an X dollar minimum fee. So if you don't want to run out of space and lose your own earning potential, you might want to hand off that client to one of the other younger advisors for whom that's a good client. And, and the beauty of it is, you know, by partnering your 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 gray-haired mentors with your, you know, younger understudies, you know, they're chomping at the bit to 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 take lead on on clients even if they're they're smaller or medium-sized clients because, you know, they don't necessarily have the network to go out and, you know, develop as many of those as they have spots on their dance card. So, so the, it it it's a great relationship because that more seasoned by by putting the incentive place to to hand it off it actually now frees up capacity for the seasoned advisor to work on more big clients and to go you know hunt more elephants you know while you allow that younger advisor to you know gain more experience than they would and work with more clients than they would if they were just out you know trying to hunt hunt their own clients interesting interesting and and then in terms of the firm overall so you said 172 employees, 48 of them are client-facing in, in, in advisory-style roles. You've got about 5,000 clients. So again, I'm sort of doing my envelope math. You come up with something around 100 clients per client-facing advisor on average. Is is that kind of a number that you target? Is that just sort of where it's landed? Like how do you, you know, when you're looking at your kind of size and scale challenges like how do you think about our target numbers like that yeah you know again if you if you're dealing with five million dollar clients that's too many on the other hand if you're you know if your average client is you know three hundred thousand you can do a lot more than that the other aspect of our model is is you know we always try to have two advisors usually and we don't call them a lead and a junior because that would 
you know, who's going to want a junior? They're going to want a lead, right? So we just, we're just advisors backstage, you know, we'll have a a lead advisor and a co-advisor, you know, for more of a, you know, kind of, you know, backstage jargon. The client facing you just say like, there's two advisors. Yeah. So, so an advisor may have, you know, is generally going to have more than a hundred because, you know, there, there may be a lead on this one and a, you know, and a co-advisor on that one. You know, or if it's a more season, they're typically always going to be lead. And then they've got, you know, co's that are that are working with them. And, and you know, the nice thing is, is the leads, you know, their their goal is to not do a lot of preparation work, not a lot of follow up work. You know, they want to, you know, walk down the hall with the advisor, get debriefed, you know, maybe spend a little time understanding what the needs of this meeting or the purpose of this meeting is, but they go in and they convey wisdom. They, you know, they use their experience working with other clients and, you know, in in many cases, their own personal experience, you know, to, to, to really, you know, add a lot of value to that client. But that might be 25% of the time, right? But the, the co-advisor, you know, they're, they're carrying the, you know, the, the weight on this, you know, not only on preparation, but follow up and then coordinating all the logistics with our planning team and our wealth transfer team and our state team and, you know, our tax team backstage after the meeting and between meetings. So, so the nice thing is, is, you know, three quarter of the time is typically expanded on the, the, the more junior where they're gaining experience. And those are usually less experienced, less expensive people. The more seasoned people can, you know, they, it's like Frank Sinatra. He doesn't set up the stage. He doesn't, you know, promote, he just sings, right? So the most senior ones are going to sing, you know, and, and in a sense, the, the next generation, you know, do a lot of that other work. Which, you know, again, allows everybody, it's, it's a win-win all the way around, you know, because the, the, the junior makes more money and, you know, gets to do more meaningful work. And the senior is able to, you know, continue to hunt and continue to convey wisdom, which is the part that they really love doing, you know, more often than not. So, so how does compensation for advisors work when you've got all this teaming and I'm a lead on some and a co-advisor on others and I I may or may not get compensated if the client's below a certain fee threshold because that's supposed to go to one of the other advisors. Is yours a firm that compensates tied to revenue? Like you get X percent of the revenue that you're responsible for? Are you more of a, a salary and bonus structure? Like how does does compensation work when you're operating at your size and structure, yeah, I mean it's it's all of the above. There, there's a base compensation. There's a there is a you know a, a piece tied to you know one time piece for new business development tied to sourcing new revenue from either an existing or new client. There are ongoing income annuity streams you know tied to the revenue you know for having originated the client at some point and then for servicing. And so if there's two you know client advisors on a, a client, they, they'll split. That servicing component, and then there's a there's a team bonus as well. It's tied to the company's success, and and that's really a, a derivative of our, our growth in unit value and, and revenue. So it's it's it ends up being sort of a Swiss Army knife of components. At first, it may seem a little you know confusing, you know, but it only takes about one quarter for people to to understand it and actually love it. And you know, because you know, unlike a traditional system where you kind of kind of go beg for you know negotiate you know a salary and bonus, and you know nobody feels like you know they got taken care of by creating a lot of transparency around the compensation, but also, you know, it's not, a, it's not like a warehouse, eat what you kill and, you know, swing from the rafters. When you, when you take layer the different component parts together, you know, there's a, there's a stability to it as if like, 
you know, you know, there's a base piece, but then there's some of these other components really act base like, although they're, you know, they can go up or down with the market. But then ultimately, you know, if you're an advisor and you want to grow your income, you know, you go get more clients or you, you, you take on, you know, fill more spots in your dance card in terms of, you know, providing good service and in, in relationship management to clients. So it's worked really well. We, we used to be, you know, if you go back, it was interesting about 10 years ago, we were a base with a bonus that had some variability, but nobody understood it. And it, it basically ended up just, you know, being, you know, base pay. And, and what we, we realized is we need to evolve from a, a founder driven business development. Cause there was three of us at that, that time that had developed about 85% of all the revenue each year. Okay. And at the time, I think we were about 170 million of new business development. Well, what's interesting is we realized we, you know, the founders could not keep growing it. We needed to get the next gen to move from stewards to, to really, you know, driving, driving the growth and, and, you know, pursuing revenue and picking up the hundred dollar bills and referrals that fell on their, their way. And so by, by evolving this comp system, it, it's been transformative. I mean, 10 years later, you, you know, you know, this year we'll, we'll bring in north of 700 million new revenue purely organically from new and existing clients. And well over 90% of that is from non-founders. So we went from, you know, less than 200, where it was, you know, 85% founder driven to over 700, where it's over, it's over 90% non-founder driven. And it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a simple thing. What gets measured gets done and what gets paid gets done. So, you know, by having a system that allows people to be entrepreneurial and, you know, allows them to decide if they want to work harder or less hard. And while I'm actually going to get it, if I go and join a board or or if I, you know, take really good care of this client and, and get a referral from, you know, I'm, I'm going to get paid more. Well, they tend to do those things where if it's just a salary and maybe, you know, Brent will give me a bonus, you know, why not sit back and, you know, and, and you know, act like an employee as opposed to act like an entrepreneur and a business owner. So I hear you, but on the flip side, like you did make the point, you're, you're, you don't or you're not trying to run the sort of the classic wirehouse eat what you kill, which to me is sort of the ultimate, like <laughs> you want to make more, go hunt more and you, whatever you hunt, you bag, you bring in and then you make more money and, and off you go. How do you think about the the balance of those? Is there some target? Like I, I want the advisor's comp to be 50% base and 50% bonuses, but I don't want it to be 100% variable, but I don't want it to be only 10% variable because then there's not enough incentive to go hunt. Like do you look at it that way? How do you find this balance point? Yeah, when we when we kind of designed this system, we we thought on one hand, you got, you know, wirehouses, eat what you kill. There's no, you know, you're you don't have a fiduciary mindset, you know, there's really no team orientation. You know, it's like it's just, you know, all payout, right? And then the flip side is like a bank. Okay. They pretend to pay you and you pretend to work. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not at all. It's like anti-entrepreneurial and, you know, people right. go there and don't work hard and they don't make much. And so we wanted, you know, the best of both. We wanted to have, you know, be able to attract great stewards and technically capable people that were going to act like fiduciary on one hand, which is kind of bank-like. On the other hand, we wanted people that could hunt to go hunt and the ones that could, you know, foster additional wallet share from clients they're working on to be able to do that. 
And we also, it was really imperative to, you know, create teamwork. And so we needed to have the incentives such that there was a win-win if that gray-haired and that understudy collaborated. And if they, you know, together were able to, you know, drive more revenue than they could if they were just a bunch of, you know, individual, you know, producers in a wirehouse. So, it was pretty out of the box, you know, 10 years ago, and, and it's, it's worked phenomenally well. Now, what's interesting is we are relooking at that right now, not because it's not working, but, but our business goals for the next 10 years are different than the last 10 years. And, and so we're, we're now saying, okay, the, the core of this still makes a lot of sense, but how do we further evolve it, tweak it? You know, there's a little, maybe a little rust on the edges of this, you know, maybe there's some, some people that are, you know, maybe would like to go to part-time as an example and, you know, and they don't want to be all on or all off. So we're between now and the end of the year, we're, you know, big part of what we're focused on is thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we morph it a bit? How do we update it? How do we refresh it so that it really aligns our advisor's interests and their opportunity with, you know, our, our goal of growing 10 times in the next 10 years. So can you, can you maybe give me an, Example for someone, uh, I'm sure there's some variability for just because different advisors are different places. So maybe this is just some some ranges. But like, you know, if I'm an experienced advisor and I've been there for a bunch of years and I got my hundred clients and a decent chunk of of revenue, like roughly, what does it look like in terms of what is my base? How much of my comp is is variable and and what kind of bonuses do I get? Like I'm just trying to visualize this a little bit. Yeah. So so let's say when somebody's starting out, it's predominantly base. And and a lot of times sometimes some guarantees, you know, so it's and by the way, they're they're really there to serve the more senior advisors and or the the clients that the firm have accumulated over time. So it's gonna be a lot more fixed and it's gonna be like you know, more like any other advisory firm. On the other hand, you know, if you think about that middle stream advisor, it could be more or less. I mean, if they've collected a lot of, you know, clients that other people sourced, you know, maybe less, you know, but if they, you know, source them on their own, it may be more. And, you know, there's base and then there's these variable components, but keep in mind the variable components, a lot of this is just tied to revenue. So it's more fixed after all. Once you get your clients, you've got people. Yeah. Now, now, you know, in, you know, fourth quarter, the market tanks. And so the income goes down a little bit. You know, the the first quarter of 19, the market goes up, their income goes up. So it's it's not 100 percent fixed, but it doesn't vary that much, you know, as you you kind of build that, we'll call it annuity like you know, variable income. And then ultimately, you know, at the very highest end, you know, our advisors are making way more than, you know, typical advisors would. I mean, they're making a lot more than the benchmarking because those are the, you know, those advisors have said, I'm going to take advantage of this and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, I'm going to delegate, you know, service work, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to hunt. And so it, it, the nice thing is, is, you know, you can make a good living, you know, whether you're, you're supporting lead advisors, whether you're a hybrid of business development and relationship management, or whether you're, you know, maybe more gray haired and, you know, you got a great network of, of people that have more wealth and you're, you know, you're more focused on, on bringing it in and being supported. So it's, it's, you know, it's worked really well. And again, at, at first glance, it seems a little more complex, but it, you know, people get it, you know, when, when they start understanding, okay, this is how I make more money, you know, and they get their first quarterly check. And by the time they get their second quarterly check, it's, it's pretty ingrained and works. 
And then how does, I guess, ownership or partnership or however you, you refer to it work in? Because you had mentioned you know, upwards of 50 of the 172 employees are, are owners as well. So is partnership like a, you get to certain client size or certain asset size and you get to be an owner? Is there something else that determines how ownership works? Like how do you end out with 50 plus employee owners? Yeah. So we, you know, if, if you go back about seven years, there's the three founders and, and it didn't go beyond that, you know, and then we, we did our first M&A deal and we got a few more. And then we, you know, as part of that, we had a capital structure that allowed us to bring in other minority employee owners and also have a mechanism so where they could retire and take their chips, even if we weren't going to sell the company. So we kind of figured that out. And then we, we, we did a recapitalization when my co-founder wanted to, you know, go into the sunset, you know, about two and a half years ago. And at that point, we had to raise a lot of money, you know, to, you know, provide him liquidity and also growth capital. So we, 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 we kind of went to the other extreme and we said, you know, you know, typical advisory firms, I mean, they're going to maybe, you know, let their biggest advisors be owners and then maybe, maybe there's a manager or something. We said, you know, what, what is the downside of, of going much more broad? So when you, when you look and, and there's not, there's not like formulas, we say, here's what it takes. And then you're in, because, you know, some of what it takes is, is, you know, is contribution, and expected contribution going forward. And if you're an advisor, that's, you know, going to be around, man, you know, bringing in relationships, managing relationships, you know, getting referrals. But if you're not an advisor, it's, it's contributing in other ways. But there's also that, you know, that fit factor. Are they a good cultural fit? Are they, you know, are they making the firm better? Are they, you know, contributing in ways outside their job? So there's that, there's the quantitative stuff if you're an advisor, but then, you know, there's sort of the position things. If like, if you're on the executive team or the functional leadership team, we sort of expect you to to be an owner, you know, because we want you to be aligned with their success. But then there's we go on another level down, and and like you know, we we have a there, there's a number of people that never would have imagined that they would have had an, an ownership opportunity, but but these are really quality people that are aligned with our culture that have contributed a lot in the past, and we're like, hey, we want these people for the rest of their careers. We want them fully in our soup, so why not, you know? And and so we we actually have 58 you know, owners now that are, that are employees. And I'm excited that we'll add more over time. It's, it's been kind of inspiring because you know, we've got a lot of really young people, really smart millennial types. And, you know, we, we've had this robust internship program for years and that's, you know, kind of fed our machine. And we've actually had some that have graduated to executive team and senior advisors. And, and so when you get, you know, when, when you can see somebody that's maybe started as an intern and, you know, eight or nine years later, they're, they're a partner, you know, that that's a great message to deliver to that really talented, you know, college grad that's trying to decide between us and someone else. So, so long story short, you know, we like, we notice that there's a difference in how the employees that are also owners, how they think, they think more entrepreneurial, you know, they, they look for ways to contribute in ways that they normally want if they were, if they weren't an owner you know, but they're also committed. You know, when you make the decision to to come in, you know, you're 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 you know, there's typically a, a more robust restrictive agreement, and and you're putting real money in. You know, I mean, we 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 sell them ownership, and you know, we we arrange for you know the 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 financing and so on. But they're they're real skin in the game, so you you just you think differently when you got real skin in the game. So it's it's been a it's. You know, again, having gone from one extreme where we were a large firm with three owners, 
you know, to, you know, a third now. And as we grow, we'll keep adding them. I, I will definitely say that that's been a, a real strategic competitive advantage in terms of attracting, retaining, motivating, you know, and, and creating more effectiveness and efficiency effective from our key team members. So you'd said they they have to buy in. You'll help arrange the financing. Is there a like, do you do a discounting process? Do you view that as like, no, no, that's not a, a necessary, like you're buying in at full value because you're going to participate in the upside in full value? Like how do, how do deal like terms get structured if someone wants to participate? Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's an, an amount when you first become a member where, you know, we'll discount it. And I mean, the, the important part of that is, is with being a large firm, you know, the fair market value is, 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 is fairly high. So, you know, if they're going to use the dividend and also have to pay their, their payment, you know, to the bank and, you know, they also need to pay taxes on their share of the profits, you know, in a sense, we need to, you know, discount at least the first tranche or two so that the cash flow meets their, their obligations. Now, to the extent that the company grows, you know, does the 10x in 10 years that is part of our plan, well, it'll get paid off a lot sooner. And, you know, they'll have a valuable asset and, and nice cash flow from, you know, from the, you know, 9 to 10% distribution that we make every year. You know, if, if we grow less fast or if the market is more challenged, you know, then it may take longer. Those, at least those preliminary discounts on the first tranches, you know, just, just make it make it work. And it's, it's essentially also recognizing the historical contribution. You know, now once somebody is in and, you know, if there's additional opportunity, they're, they're, they're generally going to, you know, to be able to, you know, leverage their existing ownership and, and buy in. And that's, that's typically not discounted. Okay. And, and how does subsequent purchases work? Like, do I, I get an option every year or two or three years? Like, Hey, do you want to buy more or is it a more of a, a merit or other based system? Like, Hey, you made some big contributions. So we're going to give you another chance to buy in more. Yeah. So, I mean, there's not a, a, a formal program per se, you know, because there's maybe times when, you know, if we've got somebody that's going into retirement and redeeming stock, there may be, you know, more opportunity. The flip side, I, I give you an extreme example. When we recapitalized the firm in the end of 2016, we needed to raise over $50 million. So in that case, it was, all right, how much does everybody want? You know, it was, it, you know, we laid out, you know, some target amounts, but said, if, if people are interested in more, let us know. And if you're interested in less, that's okay too. So there was a lot of hands that went up and said, I'll take more. So, so, you know, really in that scenario, you know, I doubled down, but also, you know, we allowed, you know, the 48 people that, that we had to add to, or, or, you know, create a new position, you know, that, kind of fit their budget, if you will. And, and, you know, it wasn't too hot, not too cold. It was just right. You know, and then we basically backfilled with some family offices that, that made long-term patient capital, you know, investments in us. So really they, the outside capital filled the gap, but, but our, our priority is always to, you know, allow our employees who are, are carrying, you know, the weight for us to, to have the bigger opportunity. Now, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, we just brought in eight new members. Now we didn't need capital. We're flush with cash. 
And so in that scenario, it wasn't, hey, who wants what? It was saying, okay, who are some of the, the eight new ones? These are people we really think it's good business to bring in. And, and made offers to them. There were some others that said, hey, I'd like more, but you know, it's like we, we don't need more capital right now. And so it doesn't make sense to take on more capital and have it sit on the balance sheet. But, you know, we're, you know, actively involved in M&A and, you know, if we're ready to do a large transaction, you know, maybe in a few months from now, at that point, there may be an opportunity to to, to make additional investments. So it's really, you know, flexibility. You know, we, we want to make sure the right people are owners. We want to make sure the amount that they own is, is, is appropriate for their needs and their, you know, their appetite, but also their ability to take risk. You know, we need to take into account how much capital the business needs and, you know, if, are, are we needing to raise capital or are we needing to redeem capital? And, and, and so it's that, that it's a combination of all those variables and then kind of an art and science behind it. But the, the reason why it's not purely art or, or science, I should say, it's not formulaic, is is it's really important that somebody might check a lot of the boxes like, hey, you develop a good amount of business. You're taking care of a good number of clients. You've, you know, you've got all the designations you need. But if, you know, if, if they're not getting along with other team or, you know, if there's some things, you know, character issues, well, we wouldn't want to, you know, let them in the club. And ultimately, if, if, you know, we, we may say, okay, this is, you know, you know, we, we got to have you, you know, fully drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, and, and then we would consider it. So I think it's dangerous to have a formula because formulas can be gamed. And, and so that's where the, the science is. Yeah, there's some, you know, there's some math behind it, but then there's the art, which is, are you somebody that will make our business better that, that we want to have, as a partner for the rest of your career. And, you know, when, you know, we, we can all check those boxes, both the employee and savant, you know, then that typically is, is, you know, when, you know, we can, we can make offers, you know, whether that's new offers or additional offers. So talk to us a little bit about this recapitalization that you've mentioned. I I think, well, frankly, the, the literal label recapitalization is, not usually something that gets used and thrown around in in advisor circles. As I understand it from what you said, the context is, I guess, the three original founders and someone wanted out. So I don't know exactly what your percentages were, but, you know, if I, if I assume a third, a third, a third, like, great, we got this big business. One of the three wants out. We got to redeem a third of the business. So we need a whole big old pile of cash to pay the person who wants to leave. And so now we got to figure out, like, who's buying their shares or where's the money coming from. And and that's essentially what drove this. Yeah. So I, I, my co-founder was about 16, 15, 16 years older than I was. And then we had another key shareholder that had joined us and, you know, was not looking to go away, but he said, well, if, if, if the co-founder is going to exit and take a pile of cash, I at least want to have some chips off the table. So, you know, and, and my co-founder, he's kind of an all in, all out kind of guy. And, you know, we, he, he wanted to do some other things in life. And so his, his condition was, I want to go out, you know, I'm, I'm willing to go out at a price, you know, less than the value, but I will only take all cash with no strings attached. Well, you know, that would re- have required about, you know, north of $50 million. And I didn't have that in my back pocket, nor did my employees. Uh, right. Good news, at least we'll take a reasonable deal. Bad news, like... You actually literally need $50 million. In cash. <laughs> literally, yes, yes. And so, you know, at that point, it's like, 
okay, what now? And it, of course, the first thought is, well, maybe we got to sell the company. And so we, you know, I started calling all the usual suspects, you know, the, the typical financial buyers. To ask them, like, to ask them if they wanted to buy the whole thing or just trying to figure out, like, hey, will you buy my partner shares, but I actually want to stick around? Like, what, what were the conversations at that point? At that point, I didn't really know what their deals were. I mean, I, you know, I'm a, was an expert advisor, not, you know, an investment banker or, right, right. you know, or, or financial engineer as it pertains to capital structure. So I was like, you know, you just call who you, you know, you know, that are, you know, have done deals and, you know, who have the turnkey deals. But the, the problem with the financial buyers is they, they don't really add any value. Okay, but what they do is they they move the numbers around and they use creative structure, you know, to you know provide cash. But like, you know, on the typical financial buyers, the problem is, is there's a lot of hair on them. You know, you first of all, you know, they give you money, but then the people that stick around, you know, have significant preferences that they have to forever more pay. So it's kind of like a, you know, you have to pay them the higher of a double yield, high yield bond or the full equity return. So we'll, we'll give you the $50 million, but you got to pay us like, you know, a a 12% year dividend or whatever you're actually making it right. better. But no matter what, you're going to pay us at least a 12% dividend. So if you grow a whole bunch, that's probably okay. If you don't grow a whole bunch, all of a sudden they take all the cash flow. Exactly. And then the second thing is, is the piece that's not sold, it's illiquid essentially. So, you know, you can try to convince an employee to own it, to buy it, you know, but if an employee is the only choice and they don't have any money, typically if you can convince them to buy it, it's going to be at a dramatic discount. Because you got to be in partnership now with the person who gets the preferential 12% you got it. yield before you, got you get it. the money, which I guess ironically means, particularly in your position as the guy who was going to stay with the bulk of the shares that stayed, that was like particularly not appealing for you to be on the on the short end of the financial buyer who puts liquidity on the table. And so as I look at these financial buyers, you know, who who is it who are they well suited for? Because obviously a lot of the, these deals get done. But if you've got somebody that's wanting to go away and take the cash and stick, you know, the remaining shareholders, clients, employees, you know, with that permanent liquidity, not a bad deal for the seller, but it doesn't really add value to the clients because they're not they're not really bringing anything that benefits the clients. They're not really bringing anything other than right. they're, they're just literally facilitating a transition event that otherwise needs to happen. Yeah, and so so you know it, it's it's great for them and it's great for the seller and it's bad for the people left behind. Now the other positive is is you get autonomy. You get to leave the name on the door. Right. You know, you, you're not you know needing to you know change you know, the leadership at all. And so for some, you know, some firms who that autonomy is first and foremost in having their name on the doors first and foremost, maybe it's okay. You know, or if you haven't planned early enough and that's your only choice as as a founder, then I think that's where a lot of those deals are done. So that was, the, you know, talk to them and it's like, well, this is crazy. I can't believe anybody would do these. So then we went on, I, you know, I went on and talked to a whole slew of traditional private equity firms, firms. And, you know, these are ones that, you know, like I talked to Carlisle as an example and several others. I mean, several of the big names, you know, and, and, and the problem with them is they're willing to pay a decent price, but they want control. 
they want to invest a lot of money in the business, you know, they've got a three to six year window and it's usually on the shorter end of that. But but then what they're doing is is they, they've got a limited window. They want to pump it full of steroids, put you on the treadmill, make you run fast, and then pimp you out to the highest bidder in three to five years. And, and when you think about how they make their money, they're making a preference on their return and the and so, so how do they how do they create return they negotiate really hard really well on the front end to get a good price okay then they spend a bunch of money in the short term to try to drive revenue unsustainable revenue and then what they do is you know a year or so before they want to sell it they cut a bunch of costs lay a bunch of people off to drive up the ebitda which works for a little while, you know, because like, let's say you, you stop spending, investing in the business. It doesn't really hurt, affect your growth, you know, for now, it will three or five years from now. And, and then a lot of times they're using, you know, four to six times leverage. So that way they don't have to put as much money in and the leverage, you know, creates even higher return. And a lot of times they're doing sub acquisitions. So they're going out and, but, but they only got a limited window. They got, you know, three to five, three to six years. So they're buying whoever they'll say yes and, and putting those together because they don't really care if it's a bad outcome in the future because they're going to be gone. You know, what they do is they then flip it to the next PE firm who then starts the whole cycle again. So, you know, where I was at, I, I, you know, when, when we, we approach these guys, I, I, I wanted to put more money in. I didn't want to take money out. And, you know, I wanted to build this. I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't even 50 years at the time old and I, and I wanted to build this for a lot of years and I didn't have that choice because they were going to sell it not to who was good for my clients and good for me and good for my team. They were going to sell to whoever would pay them the most. And they were going to, you know, and the other element was like, you know, I had built some wealth through dividends and if employees were going to come in, they were going to need the dividends to pay their debt. The problem is the private equity firms, if they're going to layer on four or five times debt, there is no dividends. They're using those dividends to pay the debt during that interim period, meaning the employees wouldn't have had any opportunity to participate in this. So how do you incent them? How do you motivate them? You know, and if, and if I want to create a you know firm that might be doing this for 20 or 50 years or 10 years, I want to have the optionality to do whatever makes sense not to artificially, you know, be be forced to sell just because their fund was coming due, you know, or because, you know, if they can sell it faster, you know, they do these different things to pump up the return. If they can flip it faster, that return is compressed in a, a narrower number of years, meaning their IRR is higher and their 20% promote is higher and they make a ton of money. So it's, it's really profitable for them. And so like if you, you know, for the PE firms, that's why they make so much money. And, and if, and if you didn't care about what happened to your clients and team, you know, five years from now, and it was all about, you know, taking some chips off the, the table and then another, my second bite of the apple in five years, it might be a really good way to, to, to create wealth. If you believe they're good at what they do, you know, you, you could actually have a hell of a second bite at the apple. Just right. may or may or may not want to go for the next cycle thereafter. It's just, you know, a lot of advisors, you know, feel like it's important to be a fiduciary. And they, they a lot of advisors say, you know, my my employee's outcome is as or in some cases more important than mine. So, you know, what happens is, is you don't know who's going to own them in three to five years. I mean, it may be you might be fee only and they're selling it to, you know, a brokerage firm. You know, they you know, they may be slapping you together with the firm that's got a different investment flaw. Philosophy, or you may think you're going to run this firm, but then they're going to install their own leadership in there and, you know, see you. 
so it's just again if you're if your your intent is to maximize outcome in a, say a five year window, it it can be a way to do that. But you know, like that wasn't our vision. Our vision was to build something and have compound interest. You know, create serious generational wealth for our team. You know, to create a great outcome for our clients. You know, to you know, I was in a position where I had you know drinking my own Kool Aid and accumulated a lot of assets outside the business. So I, I I didn't I didn't need liquidity and and frankly the you know preferred cash flow over time. So that didn't work. So then we you know then we talked to you know some traditional banks and believe it or not you know there was there was there was two banks that were willing to lend the full fifty million dollars. But what's the problem with that? I mean, you, you bottom line, if the market blips, you know. You're you're bust, and you know they're taking it back from you. So that would have been you know another way if if we so you know ra- rather than having the private equity firm leverage the heck out of your out of your business, like you can leverage the you heck can out do of it your, yourself, yeah, out nope. of the business yourself. At least you get the you keep your control, you get your upside. But you know bank bank wants its check on the regular dates that the loan is due. So if your if the market downturn is bad enough and your profits dry up, you get a you get a cash flow squeeze. Right. And that wouldn't normally work for most RIAs because, you know, most RIAs, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not big enough. So the bank, the cash flow banks aren't going to look to, they're not going to have a lot of confidence in that dividend if like the owner isn't around or something happens to them. Right. I guess that at least was the virtue for the size that you guys were at. Like you, you actually could get the giant loan, but, but you'd still have to actually have the giant loan. (laughs) And, and it also related to the fact that I was rolling all my equity and I had built up a decent amount of net worth outside the business. And I would have had to guarantee, you know, put all that money at oh. risk. So not only would have I had to put, you know, the business at risk, I would have had to per- put my personal balance sheet at risk. I would have had to put my lake house at risk, you know, and, and probably, you know, you know, probably put my children up for collateral. They, they didn't quite get to that point in the negotiation, but. Right. When you borrow $50 million, they do kind of want to want you to put up anything you can. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, if, if we knew the market was going to do really well for the, you know, the 10 years or so afterwards, it would have been a great way to build wealth and remain independent. But, you know, if it if it went the wrong direction, we would have been poof. And our employees would have been poof right alongside. And so that didn't make sense. So, I, you know, my what, what I learned at that point was a good mentor of mine who has his own family office and had several liquidity events, you know, said, you know, you, you need to, you know, maybe raise money from family offices. And, you know, family offices, they we like cash flow. And by the way, we, we don't want to flip good investments because when we do that, we have to pay capital gains tax. And, and by the way, we don't want to operate the business. We just want to provide, you know, capital. And so it was intriguing because it, it seemed to be a better fit and it would allow us to not have to over lever our business. It would allow us to still take a dividend. You know, the time horizon is is kind of as long as I could convince them to, to, to invest. And so I, you know, I literally speed dated billionaires for the next few months. Out of, out of curiosity, like where do you, where do you find billionaires to speed date? Like I get the whole, Hey, I want to check out family offices, but like, do you literally then cold call family offices and say like, "Hey, I got a I got a firm. If you're interested in making an investment, like, do you are there consultants that do speed dating introductions? Like, how does that work?" I mean, I, I called some consultants that knew some family offices, but then they put their own hair on the deal, so that didn't really make sense. You know, I I knew a couple, you know, you know, from the lake that I'm at, and so I said, "Hey, can you introduce me to some others?" You know, I'm in the YPO you know organization, and you know, so I tapped into relationships there, 
I, I just talked to anybody I knew that I, I either, you know, was ultra high net worth or, or maybe new billionaires. And then, you know, it just, you know, the story was good. And, and so it was you know, classic networking. You know, so long story short, I, I had a bunch of them that wanted to do this. I mean, a lot of them. And so I, I, I went from at the very beginning thinking we had to sell the firm to realizing, you know, I can pick and choose who I want to be partners with. And it's not these guys all got money, you know, and they all want to deploy it. And, you know, and, 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 and he actually got like, a, you know, advisory firms by general standards are, you know, we run. 25%, 30% profit margins for firms, some high margin firms run higher. Like if if you have capital to deploy and your choices are, you know, cash that yields nothing or even high yield bonds that yield single digits or equities, depending on how bearish you are, like maybe you're gonna give you eight to ten percent. Or hey, here's this advisory firm thing that has the like 10 to 15% cash on cash dividend yield and it appreciates kind of a heck of an investment if you've got cash and at least are, you know, are wealthy enough, you can take concentrated small company, you know, risk, right? Because we're, we're still like, we're sub, sub, sub micro cap businesses relative to. That's exactly companies. right. And, and interestingly, you know, the families I picked, and the reason I picked them is because I liked them and because they could bring a lot of other value. You know, they had great expertise and they had, you know, people that that work for them or, you know, that that really could help us grow and that that I that I trusted, frankly. And so I, I picked and choose. And the, but the reason why they like it is, you know, most of the money that ended up getting deployed was foundation money. And as, as you know, you know, there's a minimum distribution for foundations, you know, 5%. And, you know, it's hard to find 5%. So we were the yield play for these guys. And, you know, the, the two two of the, the largest families, you know, they they liked the cash flow because they could, you know, their their billionaire patriarchs could, could make larger charitable distributions. Interesting. Nothing like that humbling experience of like where this business you spent your lifetime building really fits into the hierarchy. Like, Oh, you're the you're the cash cow dividend yield for a billionaire's five percent foundation distribution. Like, okay, exactly. I'm now in my place in this world again. <laughs> it's kind of cool. I mean, we're we're successful. More money goes to charity. I mean, yeah, it's like and, it's like it's like a win win, right? Yeah. Well, and 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 they just want you to do your thing and keep growing and keep the cash coming. Like exactly. And, and then now this, these same families, and I mean, some of it was foundation money, but some of it was was family money. You know, so said differently, that cash flow, you know, is they like the distributions. I mean, you know, if you're a billionaire, the, the the reality is is there's usually a lot of family members underneath that hood, okay, and underneath that hood are also a lot of fairly illiquid investments because you know they know they've got generational wealth, so they're making you know a lot of direct investments or operating companies. So while they might be you know they may have lots of money. It's it's not a lot of cash flow absent having companies like Savant that kicks out you know, a nine, 10%, you know, dividend per year. Now, the other thing that worked well was, you know, they were, what I liked a lot about them is they had a lot of confidence in me and our team because I was, I was willing to put many millions more of my own money in. So I wasn't taking chips off. I was putting more in. They said like, Hey, if the CEO and the founder is that confident, we should be confident. And, and by the way, that was part of the reason I had 48 employees that said we're in too, because Brent's in, you know, we're in. And as I indicated, you know, my, my co-founder, because he wanted all cash, no strings attached, he was willing to, you know, take less than market. So the nice thing is, is, you know, he got what he wanted. 
family office gets a pop as well. He gets what he wants, but everybody gets a little buffer in the deal when he's taking a bit of a discount for for a cash exit. That's right. So, you know, the employees got a higher yield. The family's got a higher yield. My my exiting co-founder, you know, got the cash he want and, you know, the, you know, the get out of jail free and walk away with no strings attached, you know, deal. And so because of that, I was see, – see, we had I had 12 different offers and this was the third lowest valuation. Now, why why would I do that? Well, because the ones that had the higher valuations had preferences, had liquidity, sold my soul, you know, was 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 going to do things that I that wasn't good for me and my employees and our and our team. So, I, I actually said, okay, who all of these can do the deal? Who do I want to be in business with? Who has alignment of interest from a time frame and is willing to just take common equity? So the, the deal was is the the outsiders, they just got what we get. I mean, when we get a dividend, they get a dividend. If we sell, you know, part of the part of the company someday, they get, you know, partial liquidity. You know, there's some real simple and reasonable minority protections just because otherwise, you know, you know, simple thing like Brent can't give himself a, a raise without the, you know, the non- employee owners, you know, proving that because otherwise I could, you know, just give myself a giant bonus and there's no dividend this year. Right, right. Yeah. Otherwise you can, you know, nuke your entire dividend, just pay yourself the equivalent of the dividend and a ginormous multi-million dollar salary. Sure. You know, there's some simple things like you can't have excessive leverage and, you know, and if if Brent, you get hit by a bus, you know, the management team can appoint the new CEO, but we get to approve them. Sure. Just really basic protections so they can have, you know, appropriate governance and due diligence. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, they get one of the voting board seats, you know, the management team employees get the rest, but, but they got a seat at the table, you know, but the other nice thing is, is they didn't like leverage, you know, they didn't think leverage was a good thing. And, and so, you know, that allowed us to all get our dividends and it allowed us to, to not take excessive risk. They also said, hey, we would love to deploy more capital because part of the, the pitch was, hey, we, we've done some acquisitions to date and they've all been creative and they've all gone well and they all still like us. Okay, but you know, we to do bigger and more of them, you know, we're gonna need more cap money than we've got and we don't want to overlever going to the bank. So they're like, hey, we'll commit to additional capital, you know, to the extent you find, you know, large opportunities or you know, a lot of medium opportunities that are, that are creative to the business. So, anyways, long story story short, you know, that's where we went and it was complex. And this is the part of the problem is I'm told by some of the bankers that I I worked with, you know, and talked to that, that this was kind of a first of its kind. And I feel like almost everybody else in the business these days, the extent these deals are getting done, it's it's just like, it's financial buyers, private equity firms. There's certainly a few private equity players in the, in our space right now, or some say, I hate all these financial buyers and private equity firms. They go borrow the money. But yeah, it, it it certainly feels like you were at a different pathway. I don't know offhand any other firms that you know did, did their whole recapitalization, restructuring by just taking you know patient family office money. Yeah, well, it is, it's it's complicated. It was complicated. Now it's it's a great outcome for everybody, and this is one of the biggest things I've learned is the the importance of alignment of interests. And you know, this is not a win lose negotiation. It was like, how do we get everybody what they want? You know, we spent a lot on legal fees. We spent a lot in consultant fees. Like I killed, you know, sort of like presidents. They they get really gray when they're in office. You know, I aged like four years in one year when I did all this. 
but it and turned out to be a really, really good outcome. And what's kind of interesting now is, you know, we're, we're, you know, our, our plan and vision is to be, you know, one, you know, of the mega firms that are consolidating the industry and providing a succession solution. Almost all the others are venture or private equity or financial buyer backed. You know, we've got a structure that we're confident we, we can grow, you know, from 6.3 billion to 63 billion, 10 times in the next 10 years, you know, remain independent, remain a fiduciary, you know, not, we haven't had to sell our soul and, and, you know, to, to, you know, outside interests and, you know, which really puts us in a position to, you know, focus on creating value for our employees and our clients and our, and our community, which is really what we're all about. I'm fascinated with this and just the, I think the point that you made at the end, just the, the dynamic of alignment of interest, you know, if, if, if you're going to take money, you know, it's, I guess, just sort of reality, like money comes with expectations and strings attached, but it's fair to recognize like different people come to the table with money in different contexts of their own and have different motivations. And so you can, you can pick money that fits what your, you know, what aligns to what you want to do in the first place. You want to take a couple of chips off the table, try to grow it huge and have a big exit at the end, like go grab some private equity money. They'll show you how to do it and, and amp it up. And if that's, you know, if you want to swing for a home run, like that's what they do. You can go along for the, for the journey. If you want to take all the risks yourself, like go borrow $50 million or whatever the number is, if it works out great, you, you benefit from the leverage. But you know, if, if your angle is like, I want slow patient money, there are people out there who have slow patient money. It's not private equity firms because they're fast and it's, not banks because they don't, you know, they just want their debt payments. But, you know, there are investors with different motivations who you may be able to be aligned to and get the dollars you want under the terms you actually want. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, in you know, what I I felt the best thing for our team, for me, for our clients was not a sprint, not a marathon, but like a double Ironman. You know, in other words, you know, we, if we want to do this for 20 years, we want to compound interest for 20 years. You know, if we want to, you know, build this for 20 years, we want to do that. Now, if we want to go public at some time. We want to be able to do that. If it makes sense to sell it, we want to be able to do that. If we want to have the, the, you know, this be a, a permanent family owned and family office owned business, we want to do that. I really value the, the optionality. And, and that was, that's only possible if you get this alignment of interest. And my analogy would be like, you know, before the recap, you know, we were, we, we had this like America's cup sail boat, you know, but it had barnacles on it and it had holes in the sail. You know, we we're dragging some anchors. We kind of had some amateur crew and but we we're still winning. I mean, we we're growing. We we're profitable. You know, our clients loved us, but it was just hard. And 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 so what what I've learned, my biggest lesson from all this is the importance of aligning interests. And and what does that mean? It means that we got, you know, investors, you know, that liked our capital structure, that 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 were aligned around our dividend policy that liked the long time frame that didn't want leverage. We had a board, all of our board, we got rock star boards. I mean, it's crazy, you know, the amazing board I've got, 
and and we we have them not because they invested they invested because I wanted them as a board member so I went out and found this this crazy best board in our industry you know by far and said yeah uh, Charlie Johnston who was the CEO of Smith Barney and and the president of Morgan Stanley Smith Barney and did the largest merger in the history of you know financial services you know I want you on my board but in order you know and he liked the story but but you got to invest a lot of money because I want you all in. I don't want to just like come and show up once in a while. I'm, you know, I so want it's kind you. of a bold pitch. Like I would like you to take the time to join my board, but in order to do it, you have to put money in. Like not, I'm going to pay you be on my board. Like, yeah, you, you got to put money in if you want to be on my board. How does that ask work exactly? Yeah, no, well, no, I mean, it, it, the gist of it is, is, you know, we pay them because you can't get good people if you don't pay them, but I can't pay them enough. And by the way, be, you know, because the kind of people I want are really successful and, you know, frankly, they can go on other boards that can pay them more. So it was like, you know, here's the opportunity to sell them on the opportunity. And, you know, I want you, you know, to be here you know, advising me. I've never, you know, built an organization a fraction of the size of the one you owned. You know, Jack Broad, you know, he's the guy that started in the Vanguard Advisory Services. Now, now has got the PAS 100 billion plus robo. And then he ran strategic planning for Vanguard 10 years ago for several years. And then he started the financial advisor division, grew that from 300 billion to a trillion three before he retired. Well, it's like you, Jack have scaled a business. You understand our business. You know, you, you know, he's the expert. It was the expert at Vanguard on net promoter score and client experience. He's a CFP board, you know, chairman. Now it's like, I want you on the board. And so he's on my board. I mean, this is the kind, I mean, it's like, cause, cause I can learn from this guy. He can, he can help us. He can give us credibility. Uh, Keith Taylor, you know, Keith was a you know investment banker at Goldman Sachs in the financial area for a lot of years. He, for nine years, he, you know, he was ran fintech and asset management, wealth management, and did some bank deals at, for Carlisle. You know, and then he joined the Eccles family office, known as Sinosier, and is an expert in our industry. Well, you know, he they were the, ended up being the lead investor, so of course he was on the board. But but I, I wanted Keith. You know, the, you know, there's there's a bunch of billionaires out there, and they all got cash, but they don't all have Keith. So so it's really, and I can go on. I mean, I get you know eight board members, six which are outsiders. You know, only two which are employees, including me. And they're, they're people that, you know, have all got very myriad experience in, you know, in growing businesses and M&A and capital structures. So talk to us just about like the, I don't know, the, the nature of the board itself. Like I, you know, I mean, I think for most advisory firms, well, I, most, as far as I know, just we don't have a board. I mean, we don't have a board of directors at all. We may have an advisory board, which is sort of a, you know, get some of your good clients and have them give you feedback and, and you know, about stuff that you're doing for them. But, you know, I think your, your board is much more of a, a governance and leadership style board. So just help me understand, like, how does the, how's the board work? Like, are, are they making decisions in the business? Are they, just informing you, how often do you meet and bring them together? Like, what does this board do exactly in context? Yeah, well, we, we have quarterly board meetings that are around a full day. We do, you know, extended play retreat in the summer. You know, we do periodic meetings in between. You know, I'm calling them all the time to, to leverage their, their insights and experience and networks. The key thing is it's a real board. I mean, it's it's a real board. And like I said, six out of the eight people are outsiders. 
about one hour of each meeting is government governance. It's check the box things. And we use a system called Carver Governance, which basically says what's the mission, what must you do, what can't you do, and what do you need to give us regular reports on. So there's there's kind of we'll call it a you know formal aspect of the governance that, that lasts, you know, probably about forty five minutes to an hour. And then there's, you know, kind of an update, which, you know, so between the update and the formal governance is probably two hours. The rest of the time is is really focused on strategic managers. Now, they're not wanting to tell me what to do. That's not what they do. They're, they're advisors. You know, they want to provide strategic input. They want to, you know, have shared experience. They want to, you know, say, hey, this is what worked at Vanguard or this is, you know, one of my portfolio firms at Carlisle you know, or I've got this other, you know, direct investment, then this is what they've done. So it's, it's clearly advisory, but it's, it's very much, you know, strategic focus. I mean, I, you know, my last board meeting, for example, were we've decided, you know, we, we've, we, we used to do sort of opportunistic M&A before the recap, and now we've been trying to be deliberate about that. And so we've gone from very small M&A to small. And then the next logical step was to go to medium. But I realized, I, I think this industry is consolidating faster. And, you know, we, we've got this up, we got all the pieces, to, all the, all the boxes checked to be, you know, kind of stand out from these mega firms that are consolidating where we're an independent operating company that's best in class. We're not a financial buyer or a PE firm. Wow, that's unique. We could be a key player. So we should jump right from small to large, you know, build out a full deal team. And so I, you know, I wrote a full-blown, you know, Harvard case study as part of an executive education program. I went there and we spent four hours processing it. Now you got, you know, PE guys, you got people that scaled firms, you know, you got a guy that was, you know, helped scale you know, Vanguard, I, you know, one of my board members is, is a billion plus RAA, but he's got an accounting firm that's, you know, much larger. And we bought an accounting firm a few years. So he brings perspective on there. One of the bankers, one of the guys, you know, is an investment banker, but he's a debt specialist. So, so the, the you know, we spent, you know, about four hours just processing, you know, how we think about this. And I, you know, now they, you know, I laid out, you know, the scenario, here's a draft case, here's the questions I have. And I was sort of the protagonist in a Harvard case study and Keith Taylor, who's our lead board member, you know, ran the discussion and it was phenomenal, you know, and so we came out of there and it's like, yes, go big. And but they provided a bunch of other insights around, you know, you should think about this, you should think about that. And, you know, so we're, we're moving forward. But it was being able to have this brain trust to, to help me think about strategically about this because I've never done this before. And these guys have, you know, and I trust them and they, you know, they like me. So it's, it's when you, it's be the trust thing, right? I trust them. They trust me, you know, they're vested in our game, you know, we're doing it. And I think our odds of success will be a lot higher because, you know, they, they've, they've helped me formulate that long-term strategy and will help me execute where I want them to help me. So it sounds like it's it's kind of ten or twenty percent governance, mostly just sort of the 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 legal formality things that that need to be done from a governance perspective, and 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 eighty percent plus just help me really go deep in figuring out the strategy and next steps of where I'm going with the business and how I'm getting there. Like uh, I'm I'm the leader. I got this fifty million revenue business. I want to grow it much larger. I need people who have done this cycle who can give me guidance and advice, like that's what y'all are here for. Yeah, that that's that's about right. Now it's evolved a little bit. You know, the first year and a half or so, there was the governance aspect, but then they they needed to get up to speed. So we, you know, we did a variety of presentations. Our executive team would would, you know, do deep dives on different fronts. 
and then they got to a point they said, like, we understand the business. Okay, we, we don't need any more PowerPoints. We want to focus on strategic. We want to help you. You know, we want to hold your feet to the fire where it makes sense. We want to pat you in the back where it makes sense. We want to, you know, you know, we're aligned. Let's be successful. So anyways, it's, it's been phenomenal. You know, I, as I said, there's really myself and my other co-founder who's on the board, but our full executive team, you know, our attendees and, you know, sometimes there are flies in the wall and other times, you know, we'll ask them questions and other times they might be, you know, giving a report on something. So the nice thing too is, is you've got, you know, a real executive team, by the way, our executives aren't advisors, they're full-time professional managers, you know, that are also crazy smart and very good experience, but they're, they're having the ability to, you know, to gain these, the board's insights as well, you know, as opposed to me hearing it and having to go back and interpret and, you know, you know, carry the flag back to the executive team. So it's really been valuable because, you know, in real time, our executive team gets to, to gain the wisdom, you know, from this, you know, this crazy smart, you know, group of business people. And and so talk to us a little bit about the sort of ex- – so you've mentioned the board level and then this executive team structure. And, you know, I'm struck like for a lot of firms, one of the reasons why people want to become partners and owners is, is the proverbial, you know, have a seat at the table and a say in the firm. You seem to n- not quite be running on that structure. I'm, I'm assuming for like 58 people at the table having the conversation <laughs> would be very, very productive. It'd be a big anyway, table. It's like you, you've got – owners, you've got, you know, you've got partners who own in the business, you've got outside owners, you've got this board of directors that's doing lots of strategy and feedback for you. And then you, you have this executive team. So like, what does executive team look like? And how does this layer work? Yeah, so, so you got the board, we talked about, and they've got one employee, that's me. All right, my team is the executive team. So there's eight of us, including me. And, you know, you got the CFO, you got the COO, you got the director of uh, communications and culture. We got the chief platform officer, which covers, you know, HR and, and technology. We have the chief advisory officer. We have the chief advice officer who oversees planning, wealth transfer, the accounting firm and the state, the state settlement. So, so these are, you know, at that executive team, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the generalist, if you will, of course, you know, have the most advisory experience of the group, you know, but the, the, the others, you know, oversee parts of the business. But when we have an executive team meeting, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's a cross-functional team. And, you know, that group is really charged with creating the strategy, executing the strategy. And, you know, I'm the leader of these leaders who then, have the functional leadership team, which is about 12 people that report to them, who then, you know, have the rest of the company reporting to the functional team. So, so if you think about it, if the executive team, even though, you know, one, one individual may be focusing on advice and one might be on operations and one might be on finance, it's really we are all charged with working together to build the company. So when you come to that executive team meeting, you're not there carrying the finance flag or the marketing flag. Absolutely not. You're on the executive team and you do first and foremost what's right for the company and you collaborate and communicate with the other executives. Now, once you leave the executive team, you go back and you got your functional lieutenants that report to you and your job now is to provide leadership to them who run the various functional departments. And and so it's, you know, if you really think about it, you got governance, 
you know, I'm the leader of leaders. The executive team are leaders of managers, and the, which is the functional team. The manage, functional leadership is, you know, it has the doers, the people that do the work, whether that's advisory or, you know, lead generation or, you know, compliance or what have you. We use, you know, we've got a routine. We've, we've there's a there's a great book that we've recently discovered, it's a Measure What Matters by John Doerr. They they promote what's called an OKR system. It's a system that like the Googles of the world and Microsofts have embraced. A lot of the Silicon Valley, you know, the big tech have have used this, and it's really a a goal setting, priority, focus, accountability. The system replaces annual reviews with quarterly check ins. So it's a really great system because we've we've always struggled. You know, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I like ideas, and I'm always finding ideas and you know shiny pennies all over the place. And so this this system has allowed us to get a lot more focused and prioritized on a quarterly basis, you know, on an annual basis, on a multi-year basis. And we start out with, you know, my career goal is to build a million ideal futures. You know, if we, we want to move the dial on a million people, that's like a 20 to 25 year goal. We got a 10 year goal of 10 times in 10 years, you know, growing revenue, growing clients. So that means we'd be, you know, improving the lives of 250,000 people. We have a three-year goal of doubling. Okay. And so now we've got 17 initiatives that are tied to that based on, you know, seven day strategic planning process that we use to build our three-year plan. Then we get, you know, annual retreats to update that and figure out what do we need to do in the next year. And then we have quarterly offsites to identify our priorities every quarter. And then we have weekly updates to from an accountability and a communication perspective. And then in many cases, you know, daily, you know, daily communication to boot. So taking a, a very structured and you know approach to to leading the firm has is, is really made a big difference to us. The alignment of interests I mentioned plus really learning how to lead leaders, you know, of managers, of doers, you know, that's that's probably the biggest change, you know, in the last, you know, five years for me. And, you know, it wasn't easy, but it's it's I think that now opens up the bandwidth the you know, grow to 25 billion. I mean, what the, between the technology and the people and the executive team and the board, you know, we've got a long runway now to, to go. Interesting. And so the, that all drives from the, the book measure what matters doors book. That's kind of the, the framework of lifetime goal, 10 year goal, three year goal, annual retreats, quarterly offsites rolling all the way down. Yeah, and it's it's that's that's our variation of it. But but yes, the, the OKR system was originally Andy Grove from Intel. John Doerr learned it from Andy, and then John Doerr became sort of the disciple that took it to all of his portfolio firms. And you know, I mean, it's the Googles of the world. And then, but it's also been adopted by things like nonprofits. You know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and Bono's Foundation. So it's a really it's it's a short read, but it was was very valuable. And we are more focused and more, you know, you know, side by side, let's go climb the mountain together than we've ever been. But by just getting using this sort of goal setting system to get really clear, really focused, really accountable, you know, communicate better. And so, you know, and then, you know, of course, getting back to alignment of interests, you know, having the right comp system for the leadership team, for the employees, all of that thing, when you when you take into account all these different, you know, layers and the alignment of interest, I, I mentioned earlier, we kind of had this barnacle filled uh, America's Cup we were winning. But now it's like, you know, a few years in and, you know, putting a lot of the structure in place. There's no barnacles. It's a brand new ship. You know, we've got an expert crew. The anchors we were dragging behind us are cut and the wind is in our sail. And so it's just, you know, I think that does, none of that guarantees success, this alignment of interest. But it certainly is. It's wind at the back, you know, where when we didn't have alignment of interest, it was like wind in the face. 
we were still winning, but I think it's going to be easier and less, it's going to be easier and frankly, a lot more fun to win, you know, as we look forward. Interesting. So for, for folks who are listening and curious about this, we'll, we'll make sure we get a link out to measure what matters in the show notes as well. So this is episode 123. So if you're go to kitsis.com slash one, two, three, we'll have a, a link out for anybody who's curious to check out the book. So, so Brent, as you kind of look back over the, the journey now of doing this for nearly 25 years, what, what surprised you the most about just building the business? You, you know, what I have learned is you need to keep evolving. I mean, I, when I look back and say, how have I become successful? How has the company been successful? I'm not the smartest guy. Most of the people that work for me are smarter than me, you know, but, but I think, you know, what, what been able to do is to continue to evolve. And I think about, you know, the stages of growth. When you start out, the first 50 million is just about producing. Okay. Well, the next step, it's, it's about producing, but having some staff help you, you know, maybe that's 50 to a hundred million, you know, but then you got to completely change again. You got to fire yourself and rehire yourself to, cause now you got to coexist with multiple professionals when you go maybe from a hundred to two fifty. Okay. But then from maybe 250 to 750, now all of a sudden you got to have partners and you got to, you know, figure out how to coexist with multiple owners and they're all player coaches. So you're, you're advisor one day and you're a manager another day and a leader another day and having a board meeting another day. And so you got to like manage all that complexity wearing all those hats, you know, and then you get to maybe 750 to a, to a billion and a half. And all of a sudden you can afford to hire maybe a professional manager, but then, you know, you know, the founders and the, the you know, now you get to still be player coaches, but at least you can get some help on that. And so now you got to manage the dynamics around a professional manager who certainly doesn't know how to manage as well as, as you do and maybe not do it the way you would do it. You know, and then I think about, you know, one and a half billion to about five billion. Now, all of a sudden now you're in a place you know, I've learned where you need multiple professional managers, you know, plus some player coaches. But the big thing is then you got to move away from founder-driven growth because the founders can't grow it fast enough. They can't feed the machine enough. So now you got to really change it to where the founders are leading, they're not doing. And that's really hard because most of the people that get in this business, they love advising and they love selling, you know, and, and leading is something they really never got trained to do and it wasn't something they signed up for. So, but then, you know, this, this $5 billion range, I think now you, now you're in a place where it's like, you know, not only a specialist executive team, but you can afford A players. You, and, you know, and all of a sudden now you need technology to scale. You need real governance. You know, oftentimes you're going to need outside capital like we did. And so those are all new challenges, you know, and then I think, yeah, I'm theorizing because, you know, we're 6.3 billion, but I, I think, you know, 25 billion, maybe you're fully institutionalized. Now, maybe you're public, you know, maybe you're, yeah, you know, can take different forms. But as I look at what surprises me is, is that I had to every three to five years, you know, I had to fire myself and rehire myself. And why is that? It's because the business kept evolving. And if I kept doing what I was doing, you kind of hit a ceiling. And so, you know, I either needed to, you know, if the business needed new stuff, I either needed to do it or have somebody else do it. And a lot of times that new stuff, I was uncomfortable with other people doing. Now, what did that mean? That means there's too much on my plate, which means I have to delegate what I'm good at. So you're, you're getting rid of what you're really good at to do something that you don't know what you're doing and that you've never done and is uncomfortable. So you're changing and evolving and taking a risk that, you know, and, and, and letting somebody else that, 
you know, to, to take over, say, client service or what have you. And, and I kind of think about this and, you know, it's like when we started out, you know, my, my co-founder was 15 years older than me. So I was the bat boy. He was the player. And then we were both players. And then we were player coaches. Okay, but then we need to do more coaching than players. So it's coach player. And then it's just a coach. And there's a general manager. And I'm not sure what the, the future stages are, but it's it's a different skill set as you go through those those stages and and a willingness to go from what you were good at to something you really don't have never done, maybe. Or you know, and and so I, I that's kind of, you know, again, I'm not the smartest guy. There's a lot more smart people around me, but that I think that willingness to take risk, calculated risk, that willingness to, you know, give up what's comfortable and, and do stuff that maybe, you know, is a little scary. I, I think that's a key, key factor to, you know, without that, I don't think we would have gotten here. There's a lot of factors and, you know, 174 people. So it's a, it's a big team. It's a big community, but, but at the top, you need to have a leader who's willing to keep evolving and changing and taking, you know, calculated risks. And I don't, I don't see a lot of that going on in our industry. You know, people prefer to sit back and collect their dividends and sit in the RIA hot tub and life is good. And then they stagnate and then they don't innovate. And then, you know, the business isn't worth something too much someday. So what was the low point for you on the journey? Uh, I would say the low point was about three quarter of the way through my recap and the billionaire I had picked ended up trying to retrade me twice. And there was some other red flags that came up and then he wanted to, you know, change some terms, which were completely opportunistic. And I sat there and I thought, you know, we haven't even gotten married yet and he's cheating on me. And, you know, it was one of those points where we were literally like, you know, two weeks from signing documents and my employees were lined up. My partner was lined up. I mean, it, it was really complex. And I thought, you know, I was like, I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm going into a situation that, you know, it's like, you know, imagine you're getting married and you find out your, your potential spouse is, is cheating on you a couple of weeks before. And, but all the invitations are out. You know? yeah. And so, so literally we pivoted and I, I called up, you know, there, there was there was two like photo finishes for lead investor, and I called up the number two and said, you know, I made a mistake. Two things, a few things are: a, you still interested? B, if so, would you be willing to step into this deal, which is actually a little better than the deal that we had last time because this guy retraded me? And then third of all, can you move fast? And it was, you know, it was yes, yes, and I gotta understand. I had to work on some things to see if we could have some capacity. Anyways, within a few days, they're like, we're all in and we move forward. And it was it was a great decision. But but I got to tell you, I mean, I, I'm in a YPO group and we always check in and say, what's your what's your business score? And I've never known it to be less than a seven. And sometimes it's a 10. It's always been great. And that was a two that day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just basically like I'm I'm on the finish line to get 50 million dollars of cash to recapitalize my business. And I'm having second thoughts about the deal. Yeah. I mean, and it was one of those spots where it's like, if I walk away, I, I may blow this up, but if I don't, you know, I could be regretting it for the rest of my career. And, and so I, I pivoted, I made, I, you know, it was scary and, but it was the right decision. So how do you, I'm sorry, like, how, how do you make that call in the, in the moment? Cause I, I, I know more than one advisor who has gone through basically the, the, the version of this where they didn't say no. So, you know, I'm, I'm I'm having cold feet in the finish line. I'm I'm worried about something. I'm not, maybe I'm not feeling ideal about some of the negotiations or the discussion. But as you said, like you know, we're 
we're we're so far into this deal. We're almost in the finish line. Like we've we spent all this money on the legal fees and the costs and the rest to get this deal done. You know, I've I've you know put my own word in it that I'm going forward. And and they and they just and they couldn't get comfortable pulling out of the deal at the at the last minute. And you know, some work out okay in the end, some don't, and occasionally finish very colorfully in a bad way. And you know, I. I Virtually everybody I've ever talked to who got into a deal that ended out being bad, you know, when I asked them in retrospect, like, were, were there, like, did you see this coming? Were there warning signs? And virtually every single one always says yes. There was stuff that came up in the negotiation that wigged them out a little, but they blew it off or they didn't want to blow up the whole deal for it. Or they just said, you know, I'm... I mean, it's just a big deal. I'm nervous. I'm getting cold feet. Like I'll, I'll power through this. So how do you figure out whether it's like, it's really real and worth blowing up the whole deal over versus just, you know, your cold feet. Cause it's a big deal. Yeah. So I, I think it depends on one situation. I mean, if, if, if one is going to sell and take a check and go away and you know, you're at the goal line and Hey, they kind of bad actor, but, you know, they're going to, you know, retrade it and, you know, it's 5% less money you're going to get, you know, you probably just close that deal, right? Because, you know, if you don't, you know, you kill a lot of brain cells and if you don't, you may, you know, you know, you now you're like good, spoiled goods, right? So that the flip side though, in this case, you know, we were creating a structure that we wanted to live with for, you know, maybe the rest of my career. And I was planning to work until at least 75, right? So, so it was, it was not a matter of taking a little less cash. It was a matter of, is this, is this an arrangement that is good for us? That's going to be fun that I can trust that is good for my employees and good for my clients because we were, again, you know, we were then and we are today thinking about this as a, you know, a double, double Ironman. And, and, and the real payoff comes, you know, not in the next few years, it comes, you know, 10 years from now and, and even more later. So, so I think for me, it was a matter of saying everything that this deal was premised on, the foundation is not there, right? As, as evidenced by, you know, being retraded and, you know, some, some red flags that, you know, I knew what was going on here was not aligned with, you know, our culture and our values. And, you know, am I going to subject my company and my team, you know, to an arrangement, which is, you know, before it even closes, you know, has, has challenges. So to me, I, I, I mean, I don't know if, if the number two had not said, I'll go forward. I don't know what I would do. I mean, I would go down to the third on the list or something, but, but, but long story short, we had a great company. We had a great story. And I was willing to go many millions in of my own money on top of what I had already invested. And I had 48 employees lined up and this is unique. And so the good news is, you know, I had John, call to the number two. And he told me, well, if you change your mind, let me know. And, you know, I did. So always a good reminder not to not to burn bridges with number two that sometimes turns out to be number one after all. Exactly. Exactly. So what comes next for Savant from here? I mean, you've mentioned kind of this vision of 10x in 10 years, you know, from 6 billion to 60 billion plus. Like, what does that, I mean, what does that mean? How are you envisioning about going about that, that kind of numbers, like that's, you know, Hey, we got, we got 6 billion in the last 25 years. So let's get another 57 in the next, in the next <laughs> 10. Like, how does that work? 
Well, so so really going 10x in 10 years means you need to double every three years. So if you do the basic math on that, it's it's not going to be possible to get there just or, or you know through inorganic and inorganic in itself is 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 not a good business model. And it's not going to get there just through organic. I mean, we you know our whole industry has grown mostly organically, you know, but it's going to be a lot harder growing organically going forward. I mean, more of the money is in RIAs and warehouses, so there there's not as much easy pickings any longer. You know, there's great RIAs that you know we're competing against and and some that are becoming very large and spending a lot of money on branding and marketing and technology. So I think the organic, while that's mostly what got us here, I mean, we've done seven transactions, but 80% of our assets are, are organically driven. That's still a key thing, but it used to be organic was the motorcycle and the sidecar was a little bit of M&A here and there, you know, and, and what we've learned is it's not about acquiring, unlike financial buyers that are trying to, you know, buy financial interests or PE firms are trying to buy accounts and then flip them. What we're doing is we want to supercharge organic growth by using M&A to acquire talent to acquire gray-haired mentors, to acquire great partners that are part of our big vision, and to expand geography. I mean, we've gone greenfield three times in new markets, and it was very successful, but we were a lot smaller. And I look at now at $6.3 billion, you know, replicating what we did in Madison or Peoria or, or Geneva, Illinois, where we went greenfield, it doesn't move the dial enough. Hmm. And there's a talent shortage. So you know, the M&A is really about, you know, we can grow our own organically. We I mean, we've done a great job growing our own. That's our that's the best way to grow talent is, you know, from intern to senior advisor over 10 or 12 years. But but that takes a long time and you need mentors to develop those young, smart, smart, young people. So we've kind of learned that the right combination for healthy growth, which is a combination of growth plus being excellent, the, the combination of those is is really, really healthy organic growth. And, you know, our vision is to we want to target 7% net new assets per year, plus you get, you know, maybe 5% from market on top of that. You know, so that's great. But then, you know, doing very targeted strategic M&A and I don't even like the term M&A, it's really partnering, you know, because if I can't hire somebody, okay, let's let's do a deal so that we can become partners and you can bring your next gen over and they can become owners as well, you know, to be better together. And so, so really we see this side by side instead of a motorcycle that's organic growth and a sidecar that's M&A, you know, we're really more in the, the direction of having these side by side motorcycles where one feeds the other, you know, the talent that you know we're able to acquire helps us grow better organically. So we we don't want to be a financial buyer and do 20 deals in a year. We don't want to be a PE firm and you know do a whole bunch and then flip it. You know we're we're really you know we, we you know we like to do a bigger one and a medium one and maybe a couple small ones per year, which is more than we've done in the past. But you know we we've had success in the past doing small and medium, and so it's really just you know doing some more and doing some larger, leveraging the capital structure, leveraging the governance to really then create that scale and to, you know, if you have scale, now we can invest a lot more in technology. We can invest in more specialists. You know, we can invest in people development and frankly, you know, create a a true enterprise. And out of curiosity, I mean, you've talked about both, well, you've talked about talent shortage. You know, there's also some discussion out there of just shortage of firms to buy even, you know, we we never seem to have as many sellers as we've been predicting for a long time there are going to be in sellers. Do do you 
do you worry at some point that just you you might not be able to find enough firms to buy or do you think there's still plenty out there at the end of the day so here's the secret the firms that are for sale you don't want to buy the ones that you want to buy aren't for sale hmm. okay now what what do i mean by that the very best firms one of two things either they start way early and you know do try to do internal you know sales the problem with that is if the firm is big you know you got to discount it you got to be the bank you got to start way early a lot of times the next generation don't have the appetite or the interest or the skill set so this this internal secession it can be done you know there's some i got a, you know several really good friends that have done that successfully but it took 20 years and it took you know frankly, you know, leaving a lot of chips on the table by the by the founders. Now, the problem is there's a lot of excellent firms out there that have looked at the financial buyers, that have looked at the PE buyers, that have looked at the bank buyers, you know, that have looked at, you know, the concept of, you know, using a lot of leverage. And they said, no way, no how. I'd never do that to my clients. I'd never do that to my employees. And frankly, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I built this to be excellent. I built this to be a fiduciary. And I've got more pride than to, you know, sell it to the highest yeah. bidder. Yeah. So, so I think the interesting thing is, is that there's a bunch of these firms that are excellent firms, you know, that are just doing nothing or they're saying, well, we're going to try internal secession, but they kind of know that's not the right answer. But the easy answer is to not do anything because they're not going to do the standard fair turnkey deals that are out there, the normal buyers. So in my mind, we've looked at a lot of deals that the bankers bring, but these tend to be oftentimes spent oil wells, you know, companies that they need to sell or they want to sell or they're looking to go all out. And, you know, and, and you know, a lot of times if, if you've not really prepared along the way and then you go sell to the highest bidder, you know, the highest bidder is oftentimes going to be a PE who will pay more. You know, because they don't care if it if it ends up being a bad outcome for the clients and and the team, because they're just going to own. They're going to be a renter of it for a few years, not a permanent owner. So they're going to, you know, they're going to pay a premium. You know, and that owner, I mean, if he's, you know, maybe maybe if he doesn't care, he's going to take you know a check. What we're looking for is is the firms that say. No, we we don't want to go away, but we just but we want to be part of something bigger. We like to solve for secession over time. We'd like our employees to be able to become owners, you know, and and grow their ownership over time. You know, we would like to be part of a firm that can bring us more lead generation, that can bring us, you know, better technology, that can, you know, have a real brand to compete with some of the big brands that are now spending tons of money. So so that's kind of how we're thinking about it. And we we don't need to do a lot of deals. We just need to do a few bullseye ones of people we really like that have a shared vision, have a shared culture, you know, have, you know, similar philosophy, you know, that, you know, have share our values. And so so we're we think there's about a hundred beachhead type firms that are we'll call it a billion-ish, give or take, that would be good fits. And we just need to do five or seven of them in the next, you know, five or seven years. You know, and I think there's a couple hundred that are more in that spoke size that call it 500 million, give or take, that would be a good fit for us. And then there's a whole lot of smaller ones, but but really our strategy is going to be to say, we want to be 10 years from now, we want to be, we're in four markets now, we want to be in maybe 10 to 15 markets 10 years from now, but we want to be dense. So, you know, we go in and we'll identify a market we want to be in, find a great beachhead, you know, somebody that wants to be part of what we are, but then do, you know, sub acquisition, spoke acquisition to add, you know, offices in a geography and tuck-ins to, to expand. So it's really about not being a national firm, 
but but instead having being a, a super multi-regional firm where we've got 10 to 15 geographies and then we're dense in those respective markets, you know, through a combination of organic and inorganic growth. Mark Tiburgeon, you know, I've heard him say several times, the top three players in any market get half of all the leads, half of all the at-bats. So our idea is, is we don't want to be in 100 markets, you know, nationwide. That's too complicated and it's spread too thin. We'd rather be, you know, big players, branded players in, in 10 to 15 markets. And, you know, a lot of those will be Midwest, you know, but, but you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're open to any market, you know, and we're flexible on the size. What we're less flexible on is the quality of the people, the alignment with our culture, you know, the sharing values, the sharing of a vision, the sharing of a philosophy, because that stuff is, it's really, you, you just, that's, that's required. That's mandatory. You know, the, you know, you can have microcultures in different locations and you can have different niches and you can have, you know, different styles of, you know, doing business. That's all great. And that's, you know, extra spices of the soup, but the core stuff, you know, is, is really important. So we think that we can be really picky and identify the the right partners that want to drink our Kool-Aid, our collective Kool-Aid, that want to identify the best practices and they'll bring some of them with them and create something big, you know, and that, what does that mean? You know, how do we get to 10 times in 10 years? It's, it's doubling every three years, you know, three times over, you know, and I think that'd be pretty cool. I mean, if we did that, you know, we'll, We'll have a market cap of probably two to three billion dollars. You know, we'll I figure at that point we'll be improving two hundred fifty thousand lives. You know, we'll have probably a, a thousand employees, and I'm guessing a third of those will be, you know, owners, and you know, have a, a big piece of that value creation that we created for 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 all those clients. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success, and and one of the themes that always comes up is just even the word success means different things to different people sometimes changes for us as we go through our lives. So you, you, you built this phenomenally successful business growing a $50 million of revenue as an advisory firm. But as you look forward at a, at a personal level, how do you define success for yourself at this point? So I, I had to really think about this deep and hard two and a half years ago, because again, I was at this, as I said before, I was at this point where, you know, I needed to raise 55 million. And, and if I was going to, if I wasn't willing to put more chips on the table, or if I wanted to take chips off the table, I was going to have to sell my soul. Okay. And that was one path. Could have gotten, you know, pile of money for it, you know, but when I, and I, you know, it's like, what do I do? How do I think about this? And it hit me one day and it's like, okay, I did the basic math. And I said, how big are we? And, and, and it's like at the time we were, you know, probably moving the dial on about 15,000 people and, and uh, you know, improving the lives of 15. Now that include clients, include our employees, include their families, include, you know, the, the, the direct beneficiaries and nonprofits we contribute time to and money to. So that was kind of my rough math. And then I did the compound interest and said, okay, I mean, let's, let's kind of have a BHAG. You know, if, if, if I, you know, this time I was, uh, I was, I was, uh, you know, 49, I said, okay, if I work till 75, God help me, if I've got my health and, and energy, you know, then what would that look like? And I did the math and it's like, you know, if we did this, this is a million people that we would improve the quality of, of their life. Okay. And, and the cool thing is, is we're not in the nonprofit business. So if we are really improving a million people's lives, we're creating a giant amount of value. And the clients will get some of that. Our employees will get some of that. You know, our community will benefit from that and, and we'll benefit from it. You know, we're, we're going to get a lot of that. 
And, and so that to me, and it wasn't about the money at that point. Cause even, you know, when we did the recap, I had enough money at that point that if the business went away, I would have been fine. You know, I went to had to change my lifestyle. Okay. So to me, it wasn't about the money. It was about this really cool building something that created a lot of value, but the nice side benefit is I'd get dragged along. And by the way, you know, I mean, I've got a lot of partners, you know, that aren't in that same position I'm at. So I get excited about the idea of, of building the ideal futures, you know, of our employees as well and, and our partners. So, I mean, if we accomplish this, I mean, again, we're, you know, creating two to three billion dollars of, you know, of, of, of market capitalization, whether we're public or we sit back and collect dividends on that. That's a cool thing. That's a good problem to have at that point. So that was that was really how I thought about it. I, I love to build, you know, I love to create value. And you know, if we can create this aligned model where our clients win, our employees win, our outside shareholders win, you know, I win, our partners win, you know, it's it's not a win-lose negotiation. It's a, you know, how do we how do we maximize the size of the pie so that we got it and all have enough to be satiated? Well, very cool. Um I'm excited to see how it plays out. We'll we'll hopefully have you back again in a few years talking about, you know, crossing the 10 billion threshold and closing in on 20 billion and just doing these doublings. Yeah. And I'm, certainly I'll have more war stories at that point. So I look forward to that. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, Brent, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and really enjoyed the time together. Absolutely. Likewise. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.